Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And I would say that means we're here to cover the MC2, but we're no longer treading firmly in the waters of the MC2 and instead find ourselves adrift on some weird fucking ocean that we're calling MC2.5. Yeah, and that is just our quickest title that we can come up with as we continue to cover this stuff, but it's really not even that because that would imply some sort of future version of the MC2. We're really dealing with just a hugely nebulous group of derivations of characters, continuations of some stories, some of which take place in the MC2, some of which briefly take place in the MC2 before going other places. These are really all over the place, not in a bad way because this was not intended. Nobody organized all the things that we're talking about in any way. We just were not ready to quit the coverage and there is other stuff to look at that I think is relevant to what we've been talking about. Admittedly it takes a pretty long time to get to a very strong sense of May again. We're going to spend a lot of time taking a look at the other heroes of the MC2 in some form or another. We're finally at that aforementioned Thunderstrike material which is going to begin in this episode which we're going to follow up with the Captain AmeriCorps mini- Captain AmeriCorps Great, you can get your lab work done there. Uh, Captain America Corps miniseries before doing a whole lot more work on Thunderstrike next episode. (laughs) After that, we're going to be back at some Mayday Parker and it gets fucking weird from there. Man, does it ever. But we're also going to be taking a look at some peeks into the MC2 that occurred in other places along the Marvel Universe, like in the pages of Brian Bendis' Avengers in Avengers Volume 4, Number 2, as well as some appearances like the one non-MC2 appearance of Laura or <laughs> the only Marvel proper continuity appearance of Fabian the Black Tarantula. We really dug for it. It was important to us. I have no shame. I worked hard. I, I found everything I could find and I, I built a schedule and TK was good enough to say, fine, I'm in. Let's do I it. I said more than fine. I was, as we were looking at the last two, I was dug in to some Spider-Verse shenanigans and said, you know, we could go a little further with this. And part of the reason I said that was because I felt like after bitching and moaning episode after episode about how this great character was done such a disservice by never getting any other writers. I felt it was really unfair not to get to some of those moments in which other writers get her. And I may eat some of those words in terms of thinking that that really could be the thing that fixes things. But having read a little bit of some of what we're going to cover, I do think it really would have benefited her 10 years ago. I think now it's a little tougher, but I still believe that passionate person who read this stuff in the past, like, 
Nico did or who came to it in the future and fell in love with it like I did could pick this character up and make her a hero worthy of an MCU series. And you know what? I want to immediately corroborate that because TK was definitely the one who stepped up and said, no, there's other Mayday. That's part of this project. And I was a thousand percent in for it. It's me who's like, let's find every panel (laughs) of this absurdity. I'm the one who's trying to make a spider girl out of a spider bite. So I definitely, definitely agree. We would not be covering Spider-Verse without TK. So you heard me. It's his fault. We're covering Spider-Verse. But we're not just covering Spider-Verse. We are talking about the legacy that an imprint had on the Marvel Universe. Now, something that I can't help but remember is way, way, way the fuck back in the day. We talked about what the MC2 was at the time of its launch and where all of these titles were. And it's just unbelievable to me that what we're talking about is that the same month that the MC2 debuted, we were looking at Uncanny X-Men 360. So that is a far cry from Uncanny X-Men 530, which is right there locked into the Matt Fraction quarantine arc. And it is unbelievable to me that it took from Uncanny 360 through Uncanny 530 for the MC2 to really die. That is such a different Marvel Universe. And yet the impact still managed to reverberate into the proper comics. And, you know, people talk about it with much more recognition. And I think we've seen a lot of characters get forefronted. But ultimate, the Ultimate Universe and the characters that came from it really did not last significantly longer. The universe started about two years later than MC2 and came to its basic conclusion. Technically, it's still going on. But the Secret Wars ending of all of the Marvel universes and then, you know, pulling Miles Morales in and we really stopped doing Ultimate Imprint after that was in 2015. So in total, that's 15 years. For Mayday, you would say it's 11 or 12. You know, not nearly as big a difference as I thought, I think, going into this. Because outside of one book at a time and occasionally a miniseries, the MC2 just sort of became Spider-Girl, the Tom DeFalco vanity project from the outside. And this idea that it's a vanity project, that it was, you know, Tom DeFalco getting to continue a lot of the core ideas of his classic Spider-Man before they said, let's get away from everything clone saga. Let's, you know, move new places. You find yourself in the JMS run, which, you know, the JMS Spider run is pretty argued about. But I would also point out that the JMS Spider-Man run is what gave us Aranya, where she, you know, gained the power of a spider totem. And we're seeing Aranya continue to this day. So there's definitely threads of what Tom DeFalco was looking so hard to, I don't want to say rally against or rail against, but clearly not make an early part of his run. And even then, I would point out, I think we see the carapace once or twice. And after that, I mean, there's never a mention to spider totems. There's never a mention to, you know, anything like that in the pages of MC2. So it is of note that, you know, Spider-Girl kind of existed against the idea of what was going on in the books at the time. And the Ultimate Universe kind of set the stage for what other books did. I'm not here to say that the Marvel Universe fell apart and the Ultimate Universe saved it, but I will say that Ultimate storytelling ideas that were so successful in a new universe and a new line ultimately led to saying, hey, why can't we do it with the original characters? You saw new X-Men running along at the same time as Ultimate X-Men, and shortly after the Ultimates was riding high on top, we saw New Avengers at the helm of Brian Bendis herald a new age for Marvel where its heroes weren't just something to be kept in the background behind the mutants. This, of course, 
synced up with some rights issues. And I don't know, I kind of wonder if Spider-Girl hadn't been seen as a vanity project, if Tom DeFalco could have walked away and someone come on sooner, how this all would have shaken out. I mean, it's really interesting to think about Bendis picking up MC2 rather than creating his own universe. And that's really, you know, Bendis wrote the initial Ultimate Spider-Man. And at the time, I mean, I, I do not know what went on behind closed doors, but it felt a lot less like, let's start a whole new universe and more like, let's do a totally different Spider-Man title. Where MC2 actually really did feel like, let's start a whole new universe right from the get-go and then got whittled down to a Spider-Man slash Spider-Girl title. And it's very interesting to think about these two creators in very different positions in their careers with different relationships to Marvel as a company, Marvel editorial, starting these new universes and new imprints and playing around with ideas in those that would go on to have varying effects in the broader Marvel universe that we think about today. It's significant. Like, you know, your point about what if Bendis had taken over the MC2 instead is significant because so much of what Tom DeFalco did was attempted to retell those stories in a believable way. And I think what the Ultimate Universe did that was perhaps a little bit a little bit more delicate and a little bit more nuanced was by starting with the focus on book at a time and not being like, pick up this line, it's for you. You know what I mean? By giving people a chance to come to it and become part of it and by having a an exciting new name. And look, I am not saying when you think about the voice of the youth culture, you automatically go to, I know, middle-aged bald reporter. I get that that's not where everyone goes as, you know, a 30-something bald podcaster. I get it. But there was something a lot more, oh, about the guy who'd only done some daredevil than there is to, oh, that guy who had been editor-in-chief, who's already done these stories, who's returning to a familiar stomping ground because it immediately reflects that he's doing the same sort of stuff that he's done before. Yeah, now I can't stop thinking what if Bendis had, you know, poked the MC2 a bit. And I think the Ultimate Universe, when they knew they were going to start doing other books, they did a smart thing and decided that they would not all be homogenous in tone. I think about a terrible book that nobody should read or ever think about again, which is Ultimate Hulk versus Wolverine, which is much grosser and more adult than the entire first like 100 issues of Spider-Man. And, you know, Spider-Man was a really great onboarding for kids and a great book for them to continue to pick up. But a lot of the Ultimates really was not. And there's something good about that. There's something smart about diversifying creators, diversifying tone and readership because people can grow into books. Grown people can enjoy books that tend to skew younger. But if everything has one tone and one intentional audience, as soon as that audience as a whole makes any sort of significant change, for instance, aging, as people tend to do from time to time, they are lost. And that was a continuing struggle for MC2 that really never occurred. In all of this discussion of Mayday Parker and the MC2, I am led to thinking about a similar folly from just a few years earlier. When we talk about the breadth of line and the depth of tone that a, a line can produce, I think often about the more present now than ever. Thanks, Karen. DC Vertigo Universe. And I think about, that's Karen Berger, by the way, and you should all think of her as Stan Lee right now because that woman wrote my life like in so many ways. Vertigo shaped me so much and Sandman didn't always get sold to comics fans, but rather Sandman had a unique number of fans because it was born out of 
this horror comic era where you had Sam Keith and Mike Drindenberg, and they brought a very unique caliber of reader along with them. And Sandman had those memorable, iconic covers, and where it ends was certainly not where it began. And so, in many ways, it was difficult to cross sell comics to Sandman readers. But one thing that could make cross selling a comic to a Sandman reader a whole lot easier was the name Neil Gaiman somehow being connected to the work. And while that wasn't true of Black Orchid, which was Neil's initial offering over in the pages of the DC universe, it would become true of putting his name on subsequent titles. Now, DC would attempt that with something known as the Children's Crusade, and the Children's Crusade fundamentally existed to do two things. It existed to give the DC Vertigo titles an attempt at a crossover, which is such a huge mistake because what made Vertigo so good was that it wasn't mainstream DC, so why are you applying the same rules as mainstream DC when the whole point was that it was originally the deluxe format and totally different? I don't know why that, but anyway. From there, the other thing was that it was meant to utilize the Tim Hunter character from the Books of Magic created by Neil Gaiman and Charles Vess, which I love Books of Magic so much, but I certainly don't love it because of Books of Magic. That's just not true. And Books of Magic is a lot like Spider-Girl. There's 75 issues of Books of Magic, and then there's a handful of miniseries, the Books of the Fairy, which tie into the events of Books of Magic. Sometimes Books of Magic changes to have a backup feature for months at a time, featuring Molly, a side character, or additional stories of the Books of the Fairy. Once it all ends, it's replaced by The Names of Magic, which is a five-issue miniseries that's meant to bring Tim to his adulthood. And then Tim Hunter is sort of relaunched in Hunter, The Age of Magic, where he's suddenly a bunch older. And then that didn't work, and they relaunched it one more time, this time with Neil Gaiman's name back on it. And Books of Magic Life During Wartime was the last outing for a hot minute for the character. Eventually, Jeff Lemire would reboot him in the new 52, allowing for the Books of Magic to enter the world of Justice League Dark. I have feelings. But the thing that I do take from this is that I can't figure out why Tim Hunter never worked. I just can't. I, for the life of me, have never been able to understand how the magic boy whose parents died because of his magic destiny, who has a scar, who goes to a magic school, who has a pet bird, who is the chosen one. I don't know why that character never caught the fuck on. So I think that the lesson here is that it doesn't matter how many cylinders are firing all go. You can still really have a complete miss. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is, we were having a discussion about a completely separate topic. Yourself, the MC2. <laughs> yourself your partner, and I were t- just talking about writing in general and opportunity and talking about some really bad writing that is doing well. Not in comics, and nobody needs to speculate on this, but just broadly, you know, we all see writers get opportunities that when you read the thing they publish, you are shocked. And, you know, we were just talking about how a lot of it is persistence and networking and luck. And you can be a really prolific, talented writer who just has bad luck in terms of when somebody reads your story at a time when they are just simply not ready to publish it when they're in a bad mood. And that can break down the entire chain of events required to have a hit. It can come out at a time when your audience is simply not in a place to read it and not in a place to discover it. And again, the entire chain of events breaks down. So a lot of times, even though we point to a lot of clear cut reasons why something was not good from a quality standpoint, that isn't necessarily going to relate to how it did from a sales standpoint. And a lot of times when we point to if only these changes had been made, if only somebody else had been on it, if only they had done these things, that is still absolutely no guarantee of success. Speaking of sales (laughs) and no guarantee of success, (laughs) I have some numbers that really bum me out. So (laughs) when we talk about MC2 Thunderstrike appearing in the proper Marvel Universe, what
what we're really talking about is Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends being given an opportunity to copy-paste the profile of Kevin Masterson, properly adjusted for the fact that it's over a decade later, and it's the Marvel Universe, not the MC2-niverse. But they're given a chance to, in just about real time, like age their character from the pages of Thunderstrike into an adult who is also going to bear the mantle of Thunderstrike. It was written by Tom DeFalco with pencils by Ron Friends, inks by Sal Buscema, colors by Bruno Hong, letters by Dave Sharp. Sounds real fucking familiar, right? And it should, because it slots right into the schedule just two months after Spider-Girl The End, released in January 2011 to June 2011. For whatever reason, they took a month off there in the middle in March. Really hard not to see how this fits right into that spot. And yeah, the sales also fit right into that spot with the first issue selling just under 16,000 copies and the last issue selling just under 9,500. Spider-Girl never fell below 10,000 like this, man. That is bleak. I mean, I get it. I, at the very least, a lot of the stuff that we talked about in MC2, I was aware that it existed. Like, I can picture in my mind's eye being in the shop and seeing the thing or, you know, just vaguely having some awareness of it. I am completely oblivious to this series ever having existed. And this was like peak me and my partner really being into comics, comics being a big outlet for us, going to comic shops a lot. We were living in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time, which has some great shops. I was seeing a lot of comics and I just have no recollection of this. And to be entirely fair, even if I could tell you, I remember being in one of those shops and seeing this out of the corner of my eye one time. I absolutely under no circumstances could say that it even would have piqued my interest. Speaking of things that people saw and did not pique their interest, slotting in like it was meant to be the MC2 title, also written by a classic veteran of the Marvel stable, Captain America Corps 1 through 5 ran from August 2011 to December 2011, which was written by Roger Stern, a contemporary of Tom DeFalco's. Pencils were by Philip Briones, with inks by Philip Briones, and colors by Matt Mila, with letters by Corey Pettit. Now, this book, uh, I I can't kind of even explain the sales fall off on this title because <laughs> I don't think that it was this fall off bad compared to the first issue. Like, the first issue sells just over 22,000 copies, and then the second issue sells just over 12,000. By the end of the fifth, it's selling just under 10,000. That lack of drop between two and five makes a lot of sense to me, but I sort of feel like you kind of knew what you were getting with Captain America Corps being an Exiles team of Captain Americas written by a Marvel 70s veteran. Like, I maybe don't think the precipitous fail fall down to 40% of the sales nearly overnight. <laughs> really, you kind of WYSIWYG, guys. You should have known what you were getting by this point. I was surprised that the title went with the title, Captain America Corps, and wasn't a little bit closer to... There's actually a Captain America Corps that's like the Captain Britain Corps. It functions differently, but whatever. Get into it. Um, I'm surprised that they went with kind of the structure that they did, which we will get into. And I'm surprised that even given that, even given that it's just five rando derivations of Captain America, I'm a little surprised that people weren't a little bit more into it. Just a little bit. Not like huge surprising sales, but like this is worse than I would have expected. And it's just kind of par for the course. I'm not here to say comics can be average 
average. I'm a really big fan of saying, look, it cost me $2.99, $3.99, sometimes like $7.99 just to read whatever's going on in the current crossover and have a sense of what's happening in other books that I read. I'm willing to make that buy-in. As long as I feel respected as a, a purchaser, as a reader, you know, I don't need everything to be, you know, breathtaking. I don't need everything to change what I think about comics forever. But if I'm being asked to spend, you know, money, I want it to be good. So I'm not here to say, let comics be bad. I'm here to say this book was solicited. We sort of knew what we were getting. I will admit that maybe the covers are a little misleading as to the interior art, but that's a cover, period. It does strike me, though, that this was the first time that the MC2 got really shiny covers. Not that this is MC2 by any means. In fact, (laughs) it's really just American Dream shows up. But you know what? This could have just been an American Dream miniseries in some ways. Like, it feels exactly like that kind of thing. And it has a lot in common with Spider-Girl the end in a lot of ways. So I feel like they tried to see what would happen if they just tweaked the MC2 a little bit. Just a different writer from that era. And what about a really shiny cover? Well, and I mean, I don't... I feel like they were test ballooning some characters here, most especially American Dream, because a lot of these other characters are pretty established, don't really need the test balloon. And, you know, in the case of a character... I'm, it's so shocking seeing U.S. Agent here because I thought we had agreed for like already decades at this point that that guy's the worst and that using up a fifth of our character slots for him is not ideal. So, you know, and then you have Bucky and Steve. Anyway, I this really felt like for anybody, it was an audition for American Dream. And what can she do with this opportunity? Oh, I don't know. I guess not a lot. We'll get into it. But the nebulousness of what we're talking about in terms of alternate universes versus timelines, how American Dream fits into this was a thing that so stopped me in my tracks that it kind of made understanding what was going on really difficult. And I will give a lot of respect to Tom DeFalco and co for Thunderstrike. It is just a different character. It is a the 616 version of the character that we know from Earth 982. They are different people. They are appearing at different points in a chronology. They are growing up differently. Their backgrounds are different. These are all important things and they are very distinct characters despite a little bit of the broad shape got copy pasted. And that was a really smart way to do it. Unfortunately, you know, again, really smart prescription for how to make this a success. It was not a success. So clearly it takes more than that. But in the case of American Dream, it just felt like somebody paid me to write this book. So I am writing it, but I am not invested in any particular part of it. Except we are. (laughs) And that's kind of the bummer. We really like American Dream. We really want to see this character not just succeed, but flourish in a world where, you know, one of our contributors to Exes for Podcast, Tori Sheehan, is like, not that I've tried to sleep on your MC2 coverage, but MC2, what the fuck is that? And, you know, oh, girl spider, got it. But oh, what's this about a female Captain America? Now I'm in. And it's so frustrating that people feel like the idea of a female Captain America is so foreign that the second they see it, they're like, I have to read that because it seems so different. And yet they couldn't make the character work despite, you know, the fact that she is a really great model for what she is. Yeah, and that's something that goes all the way back to the original A Next. But for me, it crystallized in the American Dream Mini where I really thought Tom DeFalco did that thing that he does of creating iconic superheroes, of understanding those base structures that somebody has to have to be an iconic hero. And he 
got to write American Dream for five issues and really do a solid job of making her a character that I thought I want to see more the way I want to see more from Mayday. The stories aren't really there for him, especially at that point, but there's a degree to which I'm enjoying watching the sausage getting made at that point. So the fact that the story isn't my favorite part is okay because the character that's coming out of it, I am really fascinated by. And that was a big part of the enjoyment for that American Dream mini. I was kind of hoping for this to pick up on that momentum and, you know, with these characters, especially as co-conspirators in the adventure, I, I was hoping maybe she would get to kind of show her worth as a part of the Captain America mythos. And I think on the one hand, she did. And on the other hand, nothing really came of that. So did she actually get to is a, is a big question I have about all this. All right, but like the second I open Thunderstrike number one, it just reads like MC2 number 226. It is crazy how I almost mistake that girl with the book for Mayday. And like on page one, the second you are in Thunderstrike number one, it is immediately an MC2 book. Well, that's definitely the Ron Friends art, which I love the guy, that panel of Aranya that we talked about a few weeks back still just flashes into my head just how gorgeous and perfect it is. But there are a lot of times when it's not making the statement that it needs to. This is one of those points. The crazy thing here is that, yeah, this feels exactly like a scene taking place at May's high school, and yet that's not where May's Thunderstrike would be. So there's this crazy cognitive dissonance that's happening for us specifically, but amusingly, no new reader or somebody who hasn't been following the MC2 as closely as we have is going to pick this up and be like, what? It just kind of is another book with uh, some high school stuff in the mix right from the get-go. Meanwhile, we have that unbelievable splash page, which gives me eight things I need to point out. Number one, somehow Elan Dejeuner's hand is in the front of the book. Gay porn Fred Dukes <laughs> is dragging gay porn Thunderstrike away while a young Whoopi Goldberg goes to check on the young man dressed like 1992 in the front. And I actually think that all the ways in which this is kind of admittedly a silly page are the ways in which it's charming again and kind of fun it's silly and it's some of the better dynamic motion art on this page I mean in this issue yeah I mean it's over the top but sometimes I think over the top is the right place to start if you know how you're gonna steer things from there and I don't think this fails in that regard it just like it took me aback a little bit because at her best things were not like this at May's school so I'm already surprised that they're kind of into this sort of action for this character and also you know that this gets back to the point of this is not our 982 Thunderstrike he would not be this bratty kid getting in a fight so I have a bit of a buy-in being like what did you guys tweak I want to see and one of the tweaks is specifically that Kevin sucks yeah that's kind of hard he's a bratty little bitch baby it's a little bit hard but I will give them credit five issues, they get him there. And by the end, I do like him. And I don't disagree with why he is angry at a lot of people. That is always a tough sell to have a protagonist that being bratty, even if they have every right to be. But you can see that he wants to like some people and have adventures. And we get to those relatively quickly. There's not a big lead up and we don't go too long 
assume that there's any kind of problem, but right off the get-go, he is a bratty little bitch baby, and it's a little tough to accept, especially with that haircut. It's also of note that every single male in the entire book of consequence is a monster. And like, it's actually almost distracting. Like as a guy who trains hard and wants to be big, like, and has made every fucking joke you can make about being into these giant men. There is something purposeful about trying to cast Kevin as, as small as possible. And there's something like his gay porn dad, Bobby is right up there too, where it's just (laughs) like, what is this family dick? I just don't know what's happening. And there's a weird charm to the way the book acts like this could be for someone who has no idea who Thunderstrike is. There's also a weird charm to the fact that at this point, unclean thoughts didn't have the same meaning. I'm obsessed. (laughs) That is referring to the fact that Kevin is wearing a what appears to be a band t-shirt, unclean thoughts, T-H-O-T-S with the O is a giant bullseye. And 100% you need to be clear, dear listener, Tom DeFalco has no idea what a thought is in the way that you're thinking of it. And it was not even that meaning at this point culturally yet. Yeah, culturally this was not in the vernacular. It just, what a lucky coincidence. I have that screen capped. I've been meaning to get it posted because it's just so accidentally perfect and I'm just blessings all around. Also, Steve Rogers being another person who, yeah, Steve's big and we all know that, but the way they angle him up and angle Kevin down in the panel where they finally confront each other, he just looks like an absolute brick shit house. And very clearly the idea here is to point to the fact that this is just a, Kevin just a little guy. And that's cool. That's funny and fun. It's again very over the top. You know Tom DeFalco just is not super concerned about homoeroticism or what goes on on gay porn websites, but the two of us definitely are fully aware of the accidental implications of every single thing we're seeing here when Kevin interacts with another older male. Like when Steve on page 9 of issue 1 says, go ahead son, pick it up. Now, he's of course referring to the mace that they're just giving a child. They have an Asgardian piece of magic and they're just giving it to a child. That's weird. Now they say it's because they're just testing it. They're making, you know, they need to know if he's going to have any reaction to it. But when they first have him pick it up, he seems like he might go evil with it. And then he's like leaving with it because they're letting him and Rhino attacks. And that's where things get particularly, I don't know what we're doing here. I mean, I will give them credit. They do repeatedly address the fact that giving this artifact to a child was a bad idea. Throw this squarely on Steve Rogers' shoulders as it should be thrown. It clearly is an odd choice. Superheroes have been creative out of odder choices, so I'm tempted to just let it go. I do really respect that they weren't like, yeah, we're never gonna mention what a weird idea this was ever again. It's pretty consistently referred to that way. Sharon Carter is in the mix, constantly annoyed at everybody, and including Steve for giving this child a powerful magical weapon. It is a very odd choice, and without it, there's no story, so we just kind of gotta go with it. There's also, through the course of the melee, a moment where young Kevin remarks specifically the mace that somehow transformed me into dad. All right, I don't disagree with that interpretation, but the language is so specific, and it lines up with so many different things across the MC2, whether it's the way Zane transformed into a form of his father. Like, I mean, literally, his face became like his dad's face. 
And there is something about like, and good for him. Tom DeFalco must have had like the biggest, coolest dad, or at least like a really great father figure, or maybe that's just the father figure he always wanted to be. That in these stories, the definition of big, powerful, and able is your dad. Uh, It does start to, when it's the same beat in so many comics, which again, it's sort of a convention of the medium. It does start to become, we all want to look down and see our dad's dick. And I don't know what's what's exactly the right read here. And the only reason I put that particular on it is because these are guys literally physically transforming physically into their fathers physically. It's really a metaphor. Yeah, they don't linger on it too long, which I respect, although getting to where we're supposed to be is quite the hilarious journey. And I, again, I think they're having fun with it. So it's mostly okay, but you do, we close readers of the MC2 really are seeing this beat played out over and over again. It's odd that he chose not to do it in Thunderstrike's MC2 story. Thunderstrike turns into just his own dude that looks however he looks. Uh, That obviously gives me some mechanical questions, but it's comics, so we can set that aside. I wonder, like, did you realize at the time that you were already doing too many I turned into my dad's story, so you didn't do that for Thunderstrike? And then why do you now not know that you'd already done too many and that's a beat that you could just not revisit at all. We're going to see some other transformations while Kevin finds his way in the world. So you can chalk this one up to it was just kind of the first thing he thought, whatever, which is a fun beat. But yeah, it's odd to keep revisiting this fascination with being a little boy that turns into your giant dad. Because to jump ahead of the Todd Knock beautifully drawn flashback, I can't get over. That's like big Knock fan, but that's like some of his best work in one of these kind of books. Uh, The cover of Thunderstrike number two is hot for teacher. Oh God, don't even get me fucked started. Yeah, it just too immediately plays into that trope and not in a self-aware way. Which is weird because the story isn't too much that. Like he, the aforementioned teacher, which we will get into who that is, but he's pretty in awe and respectful and is put into a bunch of situations where it would be very easy for him to be like, no, this is my date. And he kind of just treats her like a big sister mentor friend. So for this to be the cover tells me that somebody along the way, maybe an editorial, I'm not going to point fingers or name names. Somebody had a really kind of dumb idea about what might sell. And I hate it, but I'm really grateful that it was not a thread that was pulled through the issues because said teacher is going to be here for the entire series. And I would be really bummed to do constant horny boy in a man's body jokes about this woman. Yeah, really. Because the other thing we need to remember is he's 16. And this is why we kind of try to avoid body swap stories at this point in our canon because it leads to the automatic of you keep pointing to how his body is different not to mention let's stop saying because the young man is big he's capable of war yeah that's something we phased out of our lexicons a really long time ago and it really diminishes all of the work we've done as a culture to try and understand the values of mental health recognizing trying people as a minor understanding the development of the psychology and the human brain these are things that you know they're kind of hallmarks that we don't talk about when we talk about our modern books when we sit down to an x-men we don't say "Mm, there's all of this stuff about how annalee is being physically transformed into a bigger roidier lizard boy it's just not the story oh i kind of do want that story oh so bad i mean i just feel like if you're gonna realize that when you cut a limb off it grows back bigger and you're sort of worthless on the team cut them all the fuck 
off. Anyway, rant for another day. Rant for a new mutants issue two years down the line. I do really respect that the final form we get for Kevin as Thunderstrike takes into account some of the things that we're talking about. And I feel as though there was definitely some understanding that is a little bit updated from what we would see in MC2 about some of the issues that we're talking about when it comes to men's bodies and what they're for and how they're used to enact violence. So though it takes us a minute to get there, and I think maybe the team doesn't realize that in the time between where we start and where we end, some of the beats don't hit in such a way that they are insightful and the humor isn't really perfectly there. So it just kind of seems like they haven't tweaked the final formula for what they want to do with this kid. And maybe the lesson really is that his bigger body is the important thing to have. It leaves you a little bit in a state of discomfort that I feel like a writer that was a little more in tune with teens of 2010 might have been able to tweak things just a little bit to do a lot of the same story beats, but in a way that really along the journey told readers, we're not settling on bigger is better. Your sad post-pubescent but not huge body is not desirable. You get kind of that feeling and it makes it difficult to be in issues like three and four. It's something that we definitely see directly addressed in modern works that reflect a lot of these ideals. I am famously a pretty big Amadeus Cho fan. I loved him way before he became Braun or any form of the Hulk. And we're going to talk about a story that takes place with him as kind of the useless guy with no powers on the team who's just smart. And all of the ways that is deeply affected by him becoming Braun. And, you know, once he's Braun, they're kind of like, no, when you give into being a Hulk, you're garbage. You're useless. You need to balance being a Hulk and intelligent because that's where it's at. Yeah, it's great when you're big and we need big sometimes, but you're kind of dumber when you're big. Specifically, not that all bigger people are dumb, but Amadeus Cho, when he transforms, it alters his physiology. And there's nothing wrong with Amadeus not being big. And that's a thing you don't see just yet. And I think the other thing with Amadeus is they never, I shouldn't say never because I've not read every appearance, but from what I've read, there is very infrequently this urge to have other people be like, damn, you're hot. He thinks he's really hot and everybody is like, we do not give a shit. We're about to die. Be a good team member. And I think that's a great beat because I think it's a thing that you see. I mean, you see when teens, you know, go through a transfer when they have a growth spurt from sophomore to junior year and they get really big and they feel really competent and they forget some of themselves and who they are. This is kind of that taken to the superhero level. And it's a lot of good young people exploration has been done through Amadeus Cho. And this book has some quality points about what a young man might want to be in this world, but it can't do that same sort of in-depth character exploration of a teenager. And that is because it is written by a man who is so far from that experience. And at this point, I don't know what his child situation is, but I feel like his children are probably also far from that experience. So this is fun and it does not ever cross a line so badly that by the end, things aren't wrapped up in a way that I really did appreciate. But in the middle, it is not hitting the beats that I feel like other writers I see are really capable of in a way that makes me enjoy seeing a teen character come into their own as a superhero. And for all of the ways that we're saying it's possible they missed the mark on giving us a teen coming of age. I mean, as a guy who didn't discover fitness till my 20s, I had that unfortunate coming of age in my 20s. And that meant that if I ever did have that moment, it wasn't quite the same playing it out like it might play out in high school. You know, 
and that's that's a little bit more Thunderstrike story. How do you become all powerful when you're already fixed into your life? And as beautiful as Todd Knox's stunning work was on this backup feature, I felt very shorted of who Thunderstrike is as a character. It's as if Eric Masterson does not matter to this story. You just need to know that he was a good man. You don't need to know anything about his good manhood, I guess. <laughs> but you need to know that everyone around him just thought he was the biggest and best and it's hard not to notice that Eric is drawn bigger than Thor. So, you know, I... At different points. They're all drawn at different sizes, but when Thor makes him a new mace, Thor is kind of tiny. like <laughs> Looks a little bit like Ultimate Thor there, but I feel as though the Thunderstrike backup story just maybe short sells the original Thunderstrike, who to this day only has one Marvel Unlimited issue up. Yes, that's true. Also, the backup story is partially there also to introduce us to Grunhilda, the Valkyrie who is going to be the aforementioned teacher that Kevin is supposedly hot for, but is not. Just thinks she's really cool and she's kind of mean and she's awesome. But the whole telling of Eric Masterson's backup story is Sif being like, this is your mission. This is the dude. It's the kid of this guy. And so we get this little backup story. And I get why we can't linger, but I guess it just was so beautiful and for what was there it was actually very well told that it made me wish we were getting one in each issue such that we could maybe fall in love with the idea of Thunderstrike as much as Kevin who I don't know I, I, I have a lot of praise for Kevin but I also at the end of the day truly don't care and will not walk away wanting more Kevin Thunderstrike stories the way I want even more like May or American Dream stories but I could care about maybe this unremembered unrecognized legacy that comes from a time in comics that I really love where everything is just like post 80s hair metal 90s life is a highway rock everybody's in a bomber jacket it's great and and Todd Knock kills that style so I could have done with further backup stories and I think that could have addressed the issue that you're pointing out which is you can repeat to me 10,000 times that somebody's a really good guy and I will accept it because that is the premise that you've repeated to me but that's not going to make me feel it in the same way I agree it really it kind of goes through the beats and goes through the motions and I don't get a great sense of who Kevin is. I actually love his dad, his stepdad here. Yeah. The stepdad's a fucking knockout in terms of being like great stepdad material. Yeah, 100%. Has all the makings of a toxic male, very alpha jock and and should, you know, by 90s tropes, hate his son's, you know, dead dad, but instead is like the most supportive, understanding, loving, kind man. Uh, One thing I do want to point out, I don't love that they point out that Kevin is 15. They definitely draw him physically bigger than 15, older than 15, more mentally mature than 15. I understand that he's meant to be a sophomore, but this is what we're talking about where we say like, now I'm putting a 15-year-old in all of these situations and I don't think a 15-year-old should be given what is essentially a weapon of mass destruction by Captain America. And like, if he was even 17, that's a huge amount of mental brain development. This reminding me that he is 15 years old and a sophomore at Maria Stark Academy, you really quickly jeopardize my willingness to follow this story. And I think it becomes difficult too because Ron Friends is not consistent in his art. There are times where he really does look 15. Issue 2, digital page 5, where he is holding the staff in front of his parents. He looks like a little boy there and that's fine, whatever. Thousand percent. But, you know, two pages later when he's in a hoodie, he looks like a freshman in college. That is a large enough inconsistency that other artists that are contemporary 
contemporary to this book don't have trouble with that it does start to raise those red flags. I agree probably with your point about him being 15. That becomes a writers that are contemporary to the story could probably make it work, but we really need this crew to move away from high school age children. If they want to do young people, 21 plus is still a fucking kid in the world we live in. There is so much you do not know or understand. You are technically an adult. You have gone through enough stuff that I can find you plausible as somebody who I might put authority in for a particular situation. I don't think you're going to have all the answers, but I can trust you to a level that I'm simply not going to do for a 15 year old. And it puts you closer to adult experiences, which is where this creative team needs their characters to be because they are simply no longer equipped to imagine the headspace of someone who not only doesn't have all the answers because they haven't been alive for very long, but is told by society completely reasonably so that they're not supposed to have all the answers, that they should be fucking kids and that the adults will do their best to absorb the shock of some of the tougher things that we deal with. A great type of story is one where the adults fail, but it's a really specific writer that can tell that and they have to do a lot of work to set it up. This is not any of those things. This is just a little bit of hubris thinking that you can write very young people when you should maybe be aging them up five to ten years at all goddamn time. Because truly, like everything you just said, it's about experience. And that's not to say that somebody, you know, if you tell me, and it's honestly true, that you've experienced, you know, the sum total of Angela's ashes and their eyes were watching God by the time you're 17, I could, you know, if it's the truth, fine, then it's the truth. But then I'm going to still be like, you poor kid. Yeah. You poor and kid. And I'm going to say when somebody writes your life story into a comic book, they better be real fucking capable of figuring out how to hit all those beats. And, you know, I love the entrance of Grunhilda because she gives us someone that can balance out some of what I'm not loving about the Thunderstrike action, which is it's been like two minutes and like he's been Thunderstrike for like a day and we're in a weird situation where everything is moving at a fever pitch. His stepdad Bobby winds up in the hospital and his mom is there. And so that kind of keeps them out of the situation. Grunhilda is like the He-Man character we always needed, but that trans transforming fucking sword she turns it into a guitar she's a fucking hero and it just moves so fast oh and then there's like jack black on one page i don't know what's happening there but uh, also can we just for a quick second i need a geography lesson mm-hmm. are there new jersey palisades i mean it's like right off the parkway do they look like the italian countryside <laughs> what the fuck is going on with this man's house <laughs> There's palm trees. I'm not here to explain it. I am not this man's lawnscaper or... I will move to 90210 New Jersey in a heartbeat if that is what it looks like. It's like a villa. That's like perhaps the most uh, intense element of wish fulfillment fantasy play. in this book like I know like opulent wedding venues that are like god damn what do we got to do what city council member do I have to promise my entire body to while I'm alive and then the organs once I die to get the approval on the building of that first I was like is this going to be like a mob thing but then I was like even mob stories about New Jersey don't depict houses this nice on gorgeous cliffs that really look like they want to film a Star Wars scene there this is 
great. It's so over the top and stupid. But also this guy, Adam Man, is it? Just a fantastic, like, completely blank slate, stupid villain that has vaguely like a whole aim squad of villains that he can just throw out. There's something very Venture Brothers about all of this where it's just like he's arching just to arch and he has his henchmen who just need the paycheck so they hench. It's real dumb, but it keeps the book moving forward. I hate the Project Runway reference. I was wondering if you were going to love it or hate it. I also hate the Incredibles reference. Get out of my fandoms. And then you bring in Mangog. Twitter reference. I appreciated at the very least that the references were not 10 years dated. I feel like that was an editorial thing. I'd be really curious to know what the references were originally in the script because I guarantee you they weren't these. But I appreciated that somebody was like, you can't talk about pagers. You need to say Twitter. I would accept that. (laughs) All right, we've gone far enough. We need to talk about it. This reimagining of Thunderstrike, this lightning mohawk, over-the-top ridiculousness is so silly, and it's obviously on purpose. It's meant to be silly, but what bothers me is I could almost buy it. That really was the problem. The pages that I reread the most on my first two readings of this were looking at, like, were they trying to be serious, though? Like, I've seen them give me worse character designs from people who are not the fuck joking. So I really need to know first off I need this is another one like were they dead serious and an editor was like no this has to be a joke rewrite the script so that it's a joke and then give us a third design it is really over the top and because it is not the last one it is slightly forgivable I do wish that everybody kind of like the Steve Rogers thing where everybody is like you fucking idiot you gave that kid the mace I can't believe he gave the kid the mace that dummy gave kid the mace every other panel should be a joke about like this is the stupidest version of Thunderstrike I've ever seen because it's ridiculous it is so ridiculous it's really funny but i wish that the joke were bigger and longer because it is too stupid not to be a big joke the whole time speaking of a big joke not coming for tom defalco who specifically used this character very well for so many years but you know as a guy who wrote the thor mythos for so long but mangog is like a super big flex this is too big a flex this is way too big a flex not that tom defalco can't use this character but there's no like this is too big for a miniseries like this unless this was top tier miniseries and getting the you know x-men deadly genesis treatment unless this was getting bendis's secret war treatment i just don't think you use mangog here like that mangog is like uh you know like a universe ender it's a ragnarok kind of thing and i understand that you know goldie shits is a terrible villain visually he's hideous he does nothing for anything he's not i'm obsessed with him he's so good seriously no he's horrible but oh it's thank great. goodness i was worried for just a second no um, it's terrible but it's why what are these nubbins that are all over this costume no i love it and then i really do ultimately like the final thunderstrike design actually yeah uh, it's you know i'm a guy who i have cosplayed sid from final fantasy 7 more times than i want to admit and uh this is right in that wheelhouse 
as a guy who has cosplayed Sid Highwind, specifically Kingdom Hearts Sid Highwind, a number of times. This is just, I just got to switch my stick for a mace and I'm good to fucking beat some shit up. Yeah. So to go back to Mangog versus, I actually don't even know what Mr. Man's supervillain name, I don't know if we get one. I did appreciate the structural move from a seemingly big bad that is very threatening to Kevin personally and something that he kind of relates to but is clearly kicking his ass and he just does not have the knowledge or resources to really take this guy on and then we amp it up a huge leap larger to something that he literally cannot possibly even have like a dice roll chance to win let alone with Grinhilda let alone maybe with the Avengers I appreciated the ramp up in stakes because I felt like it was something often in the MC2 that we would just see more villains thrown into the mix and it would be the kind of thing where if you give me a level two villain to fight Mayday and then you throw a second level two villain in that is not a level four threat to her that is just two level two villains that are going to take her a little longer to deal with and I appreciated that I saw some finessing of the wisdom of upping the stakes I appreciate what you're saying I definitely do not know that about Mangog so I can't really speak to that particular character but I did love seeing you know the idea that this dude accidentally summoned this creature so it's kind of on him the creature eats him and then it's just like that guy didn't even fucking matter this is the real threat we're really in trouble I appreciated that I'm hearing from you a kind of failure as far as this went that you would expect that somebody who had touched so much of the Thor mythos would maybe have used a more I don't want to say down to earth character but would have a little bit more knowledge of the levels of threat from Asgard such that this would not be it it's that perhaps Mangog might have even been used a little bit more flagrantly back in the days that Tom DeFalco was helming the Thor mythos but these days Mangog is like major event crossover singular bad guy all you need yeah he's like a Galactus for Asgard kind of sorta when he says I am a billion billion hatreds like he's literally a billion hate he's literally a billion billion (laughs) hatreds he's like literally speaking literally those numbers are correct yeah he's actually that much hatred he is that much hate for the gods Mm. that is what Mangog is he is the hate of all gods so it's like then yeah that does feel so you know credit slash not credit where it's due he doesn't really feel like that big a threat for this book so you know at least they didn't make it seem overblown to the casual reader at the same time they have done a disservice to the non-casual reader who knows better you know I can't believe but I have one more place I can point to where we need to stop doing body swaps because Mm -hmm. in issue 5 out on page 11 Kevin's mom says Bobby Steele tell me that boy doesn't look like my son and Bobby says okay there is a resemblance but this kid's bigger and more muscular also he has a tattoo and is that a beard on his chin okay I actually want to say number one compared to the image of Kevin putting his shirt on at the beginning of like issue three or so this Kevin is not much more jacked like if our Thunderstrike is designing his own body he actually didn't go for that much more muscular yeah it's certainly more exaggerated than an actual 15 year old but he doesn't stand up size wise to any of the other superheroes there and so that's just sort of like a weird thing to point out like also these live TV cameras where you can make out chin hair in the middle of battle are incredible and I just think the only reason I'm here to let anybody get away with anything about the Mangog situation is you've got three Asgardian weapons you're gonna bind him with it okay yeah okay that's fine that's fine it's you know that's a lot of uru okay cute little moment yeah that's 
I love that. You know, Power of Three will set us fuck Mangog. So, but you're 100 percent right. I, and I love this. Like he makes himself a good size. You know, he makes himself what I think is his own size with maybe a little more superhero muscle behind. You see a couple panels where he's with Thor. He is not as big as Thor. There's one where he's walking away from Thor, where he looks like a little baby boy again. And I think that's good. I think that's the right instinct. I think stay true to this kid who doesn't care about being bigger and almost doesn't even care about being a superhero. He's trying to figure out is my dad's legacy something that I even want to be a part of? Which is a good question to ask. And when he asks it, you know, he says, I want to do it, but I want to be myself. If I were the editor, I would have pulled off the chin hair and just had him be himself, but a little more muscular in a way where you don't even necessarily think like he puts on more muscle when he has the mace, just that we draw him differently because he's a super. We're as close to that as we are going to get. And I think it is the correct instinct. I think this could have been a very interesting counterpoint to J2 had it been in the MC2 because the both of them have the exact same thing which is that they are like smaller teenagers who hit the superpowers and they become these giant dudes so they're either their dads they become their dads their dads so they're either themselves or their dads and it's a repeat of the beat that doesn't do anything for either person where it actually would have been really interesting because Zayn Yama is younger and it's a bigger leap for him to become J2, where it would be very interesting to have this older brother figure that is a little bit older, not so much that they can't hang, but when he turns into a superhero, it's just kind of a little bit more powerful version of himself, and he can maybe ease J2 into the idea that he doesn't need to be a character version of himself with powers in order to be the person that can save the world. I think everything you're saying is best exemplified when he really just looks like himself on the last page, choosing to battle Rhino at the same size as his normal body, roughly, instead of his dad's size, and even brags that you wouldn't recognize him. It's also of note that, like, this is not the rhino I like, and Tom DeFalco, just like a year ago, had the rhino right, so I don't know <laughs> what happened here. Bummer. But Also, very weird egg-shaped abdominal muscles <laughs> on this rhino. Yeah, there are some artistic choices that I think befit a miniseries that didn't get the love it needed. Also, on page 20 of the digital, when he's showing Grunhilda his tiny mace that he wears around his neck that's a 35 year old man yeah yeah and that is just why we're saying maybe lay off the young kids unless it's going to be the actual story you're telling stick to writing adults especially because these books do lend themselves to situations that don't need youth put in them especially if they're not trying to show anything yeah I am curious about the editorial decisions around this Steve Rogers offers Kevin a position at Avengers Academy which I believe he goes on to take correct he appears in one issue of Avengers Academy okay if this was important to get this character for Avengers Academy, which based on the publishing history, it kind of sounds like maybe it was not. But, you know, know who is going to write your good teenagers and don't let anybody else near that because you wade into problems that go from the this is unseemly to the I'm calling the police. And you just don't need that when you have perfectly fantastic 22 year olds just out of an amazing creative writing program ready to write about 16 year olds in a way that 
they remember it happening like it was yesterday, and they maybe even have some connections to those communities still. It simply never needs to be a 60-year-old man. Yeah, I think I would trade this five issues where, you know, most of them were 22 pages, and that one had the really beautiful backup story for like three issues, each with a backup story, and maybe just the first two have a backup. I don't know, but I would have compressed this. There's a little too much back and forth, and some should have been already set up. Like, he, it should have started a little bit in media res, which is something Tom DeFalco loved doing in the MC2. We should have sped this up a little bit. And those numbers work for like first issue is Daddy Thunderstrike. Second issue is weird, horrifying monster Mohawk Thunderstrike. Third issue, he gets it right. Yeah. Oh, exactly. It would just clean up so much of... I don't know what, because, you know, paper on text, Thunderstrike miniseries, five issue series from 2011. I give it a C, but the idealized version of this that we're trying to see, I give a B. And, you know, we have a few appearances. We have about five or six appearances of Thunderstrike in the next couple of months from this in time, where we're going to get to see him interact with a number of other heroes, some of which we love, some that we've been begging for. Like, we're going to get to see Thunderstrike hang out with Laura, which is the closest thing we're getting to J2 hanging with Rena anytime soon soon. So, you know, I'm excited for that. I agree with your grading and the idealized version. There was really good stuff here. Tom DeFalco, you get characters. You get the basis for superheroes. I just, I want to see you consult so hard and then let somebody else write. You know, Captain America Corps really represents something that surprised me, which is, and I know I mentioned it last episode, but I feel very much like the Captain America Corps miniseries under Roger Stern's pen was an attempt to take the MC2 formula and sort of repurpose it somewhere else. Like, and again, it sounds weird that I'm saying it slots into the MC2 slot, but it really is the first time Tom DeFalco didn't have something running at Marvel, and this has such MC2 written all over it. Well, and I'm not really clear. This gets us back to the weird question for MC2 of, is it our future? Is Earth 982 an alternate version of the future based on the 616 presence past? And then the American dream that we get in this series would then be a 616 future from the current present version of the character. It's just very confusing because nobody else is an alternate timeline character. I really like that read because one of the things that it sort of confronts us to do is think about the ways in which we would be able to interact with yeah because you know I am sort of struggling with how to talk about American Dream sometimes because of all of the vaguely analogous characters to the Marvel Universe American Dream seems kind of the least possible and I think that's because Sharon Carter got such a supercharge from being in the Ed Brubaker run where she played a very significant role. For that reason, I think we're seeing a need to kind of repurpose American Dream's origin in general to talk about her. She doesn't really fit with the current understanding of just about anything and I feel like that's one of the reasons she becomes a difficult entry point. You know, to bring up an AU character I know that we both have positive feelings on despite where we 
we might be able to find them. Ruby Summers is a character that represents, you know, kind of like the best of what Emma and Scott could be. And she, even though she doesn't really fit in with our current understanding of anything, Emma and Scott are still a thing we could accept. I just don't know what it is about American Dream I can graft onto anywhere. So this question of what American Dream is this is very pivotal. Well, and the MC2 really kind of asked that you, rather than thinking it, thinking of it as another timeline, that you thought of it just as what if time passed differently. Something like Ruby or Rachel Summers, like both of those are very clearly different timelines. They're not part of imprints or anything. They're stories that said, you know, this is the future based on what happened here. And MC2 was really saying this is the present based on where the past was at an idealized time for Tom DeFalco, which is an interesting way to do it. It's just, it makes it such that if you do want to bring Ruby in, you don't really have a tough time being like, oh yeah, it was, you know, from a future in which Emma and Scott stayed together. That's totally fine. Or you do a slightly different Ruby Summers from a future where Emma and Scott stayed together, you know, started to have the child, but then Krakoa happened, which we didn't know when Ruby was first introduced. So she's a slightly different character. With American Dream, you, you're going to have to have some of those same explanations, but I don't know where you would get them and I don't know what we would do with them. So it's just a, I mean, like ultimately MC2 and Earth 982 at the end of the day become another alternate universe, which is totally fine, a separate timeline. They now function like any other one did. But when they started, it was a unique proposition and a character like this coming just off the tail end of it is a little bit nebulous. Because that really is what so many AUs are and why I often think that AUs are frequently better kept to what if type story. It is able to be part of that moment and frequently the what if story name really tells you what you're looking at when they say what if Jane Foster was Thor back in the you know back in the 80s back in the 70s it was a very different what if you know that person became Thor but you could still understand what they were trying to get across sometimes with AUs just like MC2 oh okay and you know when we've talked about 2099 2099 was never really a one for one graph they tried but there were a lot of ways in which it was original and there were ways in which it just wasn't the same I mean doom you know what I mean so I wonder the validity of some of the projects like Captain America Corps when we take a look at them from the outside I try to examine when we cover something on the show proper you know the regular modern Marvel's channel of our program and I try to think you know is this valid is this worth covering I'll be honest something that I very much like into the MC2 line the recent line of X-Men Legends comics it became harder and harder to get people to cover them to be really honest with you and when I did have coverage it seemed to be kind of you know by the arc and everybody was always like well I didn't know what happened in the last one because I'm only reading it for this writer and I made the decision that with this Roy Thomas arc I'm just out. I don't think I can ask the team to read it. And in part, it's because the nebulous nature of the experience. Yes, sometimes those stories become canon and they get referenced and it's really cool because it kind of supports that sliding canon idea. But oftentimes you're telling me this major event that happened that should be influencing these characters in a really dynamic way. And it it never has. And it can't ever because this until just now never happened. So the 11 years of stories that you're saying this happened 
happened before because you're, you know, slotting it that long ago could not have been informed by this experience in a way where now when these two characters meet, if you try to tell me this affected them, I'm going to wonder why it never did before. So, you know, I kind of said X-Men Legends. I'm a little bit over you just for now. We may look at it as trades, however. But when I do look at stories like this, this sort of out of canon story about characters that when they get put back where they go, can't have experienced it in any meaningful way. And I ask myself, why was this published? Okay, it was published because there's room in the market for it. Okay, great. That establishes fiduciary purse. But artistically, what purpose does this serve? I want to say it has something to do with getting at the heart of Captain America and what it means to be Captain America. We just last night talked about an issue of Ghost Rider, Ghost Rider Vengeance Forever, which is really just painting some broad strokes about what Ghost Rider is, what a Ghost Rider is, who the various ones are. And that was a lovely one issue that even still we kind of thought like, hey, what's the point? But it was a it was a beautifully done single issue and wonderful. This maybe should have been something like that. And I think even still we would have the same questions. But in one issue, I think you can paint something that you step back and you look at and you go, yeah, if you get up close to it, you might find some flaws, but you can kind of step back and it's beautiful. Five issues, you are asking me to go on a journey and I will start complaining after the first mile. I agree. It really is an uncomfortable stretch. There's times where I can see from the outside how sometimes my friends that aren't comic people and you know I it's always so funny to me that like there's sports that can like completely consume your life. There's being in a band that can completely consume your life. There's you know comic fandom and when somebody doesn't understand why you would not just read these all the time but then want to talk about them all the time and produce so much material about them all the time. It can be really difficult to explain to people kind of through the hokey, this is peak hokiness. And, you know, I do think there's ways to get to the heart of Captain America that maybe don't make me feel kind of so, all right. But this does make me feel kind of, all right. And I think part of it has to do with the vast majority of the work by Roger Stern for Marvel was in the 70s and 80s and just about everything he's done since has been some sort of retro pastiche. Now, he is responsible for having created a number of amazing characters. He's also been a part of some unforgettable things that I loved, like Avengers Forever, which is, you know, like a a peak story for me. He did a significant run of Spider-Man from roughly 224 to 255. That's, you know, pretty significant. So also he seems to have been part of a one-shot called Power Pachyderms, and I am obsessed. Uh, There's just so much that for me doesn't work in this miniseries that I think does tie into some aging ideas of comics that haven't worked in a long time. And that's sort of unfortunately something that often touches American Dreams territory. (laughs) One of the things that my constant refrain about if only other people had gotten their hands on these characters. And then they do and it's not as simple as that. Then it becomes if only the right people had and then it becomes, you know, maybe I'm just wishing for too much from something that doesn't happen. And uh, I just don't know. I really do love American Dream. I would be, I mean, my ranking is really like Rena first. I want to move into a starring role in present comics, then Spider-Girl. And then there's this like nebulous zone where there's so many people I'm excited about, but I can honestly, like Rena and Spider-Girl, I could really justify. And if a writer were interested, I would like vouch for them and say, I would be really interested in reading that. I think that'd be really cool. 
But then there's a bunch of characters where it's just like Black Tarantula would be absolutely amazing. But realistically, I know that it would be difficult for me to ever be like, this is the story. It would have to be something that like I somehow got to write. American Dream is kind of in a zone where I'm like, I believe that she could be brought into present can Like it's not silly, but I guess I'm just not sure who she is today that we can really make a solid statement from her and not just get caught up in how she even exists in the first place because now her origin story is so messed up. I very much agree. It's part of what made this miniseries so tough for me in a lot of ways. We get such a unique hodgepodge of Captain America pastiches that there kind of maybe isn't even room for American Dream, who I think takes 45 minutes to explain. It's also of note that Roger Stern, who I keep going to call Roger Stone over and over, and that's Howard Stark. So I couldn't help but notice that Captain America Forever Allies had come out just a few months before this, which was another miniseries by Roger Stern, which was penciled by Nick Dragota and Marco Santucci, Nick Dragota being a favorite of mine, which sees the original Bucky and Young Allies uh, up against Lady Lotus, who turns them into her mind slaves. Uh, So I'm glad we didn't go back to read that one. But it does feel like this was Roger Stern's second attempt at a recent reimagining of a sort of fusion story that never really took place featuring Captain America's classic and present. I don't know. And, and But I think she's supposed to be and future. Yeah, which, and I think that's tough. Yeah, it, it really, really is tough. Like, this becomes one of the foundational questions of if you were ever to pull these characters back, like, how would you do it? What would you do? I think it's really easy with the daughter of Spider-Girl. Like, you just send that from 982 into 616 and, okay, we can play her. And it, that's kind of just what happens, like, and which we'll get to. But American Dream, she's, like, tangentially attached to somebody who is tangentially attached to Captain America. I just... And all of this is again, based on the idea that aging happened in real time from the start of all these characters to when Mayday, uh, when Spider-Girl started. It's now all just so messy. And I think for some you can wave it away because the explanation of who they are is really quick. Son of Juggernaut. But American Dream is where you have to start getting into some real explanation and real justification. And that's where it gets messy. Well, you know, I'm with you. But, 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 but. I would be willing to do any amount of messy work Mm -hmm. specifically to get to write American Dream and Kiyoshi Morales in a relationship. I love them both so much. You know, this miniseries just sort of sees a very generic Captain America is getting plucked from time kind of story and the Watcher kind of helps to assemble a team of Golden Age Steve then current Bucky Cap Cap US agent as Cap from right after being Cap kind of sort of of course American Dream and Kiyoshi Morales Commander A of the Future Americas who is hot and he has twin energy shields and he checks a lot of my buttons so I'm into it but I do feel like this reads maybe a little bit like someone saying oh yeah well this is what Cap really is none of this Bucky crap and uh, but it's not it is this it is anybody could wield the shield if they have a pure enough heart and I think that's why I like Broad Stripe and Bright Star who fuck me (laughs) that is the cleverest naming (laughs) the fuck 
ever. That is worth the price of the book. Actually, yeah. the covers are worth the price of the book. Agreed these on both covers points. are so good. I would buy pinups of these covers if they came with trading cards that tell me all about Broadstripe and Brightstar, right. who I would probably prefer to be like a cartoon cat and dog over <laughs> what we got. But I, I'll take whatever because the name is good and the cover is good. The music is good and you should feel good, Roger Stern. So I just maybe don't need the rest of it. <laughs> The, the other thing with Kiyoshi Mraz is there's a little bit of a vibe of like, this guy really wants to tell us how woke he is by being like, you can't insult this and then running a bunch of slurs together that just should never be used for any reason. And then being like, because he's great. It is very awkward and weird. And I get that the intention is really good, but it just has that like, grandpa thought he was doing the right thing, but he didn't listen to much of what we told him about race relations today. One of my notes is, if you did this in eight pages, it would have read easier and been less racist. Yeah. I mean, you can tell that the idea is very positive. The intention is very much good. It is just the education is not there. And that is not an excuse. But this is not a matter of somebody being like, how can I sneak in some racist ideas and like get get the incels going? This is like, I thought I was doing a great thing and just nobody really checked me on it. And I did not really pay attention to how things have changed since my heyday. I have to imagine they were so busy trying to stop him from including the Ameridroid. Uh, which you failed. Yeah, you know, I really found that kind of useless and silly, and... To end the first issue on it, yeah. with the reveal as though this is a very important horrifying, like, American Dream, who I, you know, anyway, just the, the, to end the first issue on it in this way that's like, this is a big deal, when it's kind of a hokey kitschy, silly thing that I wouldn't necessarily mind seeing in the story, but not in this way that's like, uh-oh, that big threat every Everybody knows from the cat mythos. And it just kind of becomes a robot. Yeah. And the whole point is like humanity. And that's like, that's the point of the story. And I don't think the contemplator added very much. And the unnecessary background on the Amerodroid only highlighted what I didn't need about it. So by the time we get Sam and Luke Cage, it is hard to miss that there is a little overcorrectiveness here. Yes. And the overcorrectiveness is a problem in as far as like I think there's like six problems as a queer Latinx man I really do like the idea of everybody trying to have more like casual gayness in a book like and I like the idea of more casual you know Latin characters and uh, cultural inclusion but when everybody is like basically John Leguizamo and Tu Wong Fu I get concerned about why and there is something very specific about using like the racist iteration of Captain America and the edgelord iteration of Captain America, the goodest good boy version of Captain America, and then the woman, and then you make up a Captain America so multicultural so that when it's like Luke and Sam, where people might be like, oh, it is of note that you included very popular characters of color that are very current. He can be like, yes, but look at this thing I created. And like, like, I think it's all with the best of intent. It's that it does kind of stab out of nowhere and isn't developed in any way. We have two dynamic, powerful, important, significant black men from the Marvel Universe, and they're part of a prison riot. And that's a tough optic. And again, done with the best of intentions, but when it's all piled in one place, it reads heavy. Especially when you add in dialogue like Luke Cage saying, are you a brother? <laughs> he could easily say, 
I am surprised to see a black Captain America. There are much better ways to go about naming the thing if you want to. This is like the problem that we identified so often with dialogue in MC2 stuff, which is just old people should not be writing teenagers. Old white men should not be writing young black men. They should not be trying to write them speaking conversationally. It's better, especially in a book like this, where nobody's going to be piercingly looking at the Luke Cage dialogue, trying to figure out if it's authentic. Write it in a way that is not a white man guessing at how black people speak to each other. And if it is not how readers think Luke Cage would normally speak, that's okay. This will not be the definitive depiction of Luke Cage that we all look to for the rest of our lives. But they could still have an interesting conversation about a black Captain America, despite Luke's voice being a little less recognizable than we would think. That will take us out of it less, I think, than attempting to use AAVE or any kind of black vernacular that you are simply not familiar with or equipped to use. I agree. I would take a character who I think of as a either queer or Latinx character just to use two of my own cultures that I identify with. I would sooner take a character of those voices in a very generic flat tone that doesn't really read evocative of their experiences than language that perhaps feels inclusionary to a fault. But, you know, it's what it is. What It's what comics were 11 years ago and it's why we do these things because if we don't talk about it and point to it and like I think Kiyoshi Morales is a fucking phenomenal character and yeah. like part of me kind of wants him to be Miles Morales' son and like why not? You know? Like I love that but I also think that if we are going to point to this miniseries we need to be able to point with the knowledge that it made mistakes and as cool as it is that you know I could have Shannon and Kiyoshi you know maybe start something together it would require that when we point back at this just as if we were to point back at a 1970s comic we need to be critical of the things that have updated since yep I think that's exactly it I also think that there are some story beats that maybe needed to be updated the third issue opening with broad stripe and bright stars story just kind of feels a little all at once and I could have used it maybe played out over the story a little bit more smoothly yeah I mean it's it gets messy with the structure of what this is trying to do because we have these five people that feel like they are there to represent the legacy of Captain America and then we we get this whole other group of people that are like Captain America themed and it doesn't really I mean it plays out as a counterbalance in terms of like we've got these heroes and then we've got the people opposing them but it's not really a counterbalance of like one is the essence of the parts that we love about Captain America and the other is the essence of the things that are problematic it's just we've added more characters they're Captain America themed here's some stuff about them and the miniseries does sort of run toward a finale that I can't quite keep up with because at some point we enter a 70s kind of mindset of oh the magic's just so big the universe is gone and it I am not so sure how much I connect with you know Broad Stripe is Superior who I don't really care about in general it doesn't really matter to me you know there's cool appearances of like Hellcat and Daredevil and Wyatt Wingfoot but that it's all like a Tesseract and this is 2011 so you know this is Avengers World Tesseract kind of times it just feels like this idea was cool enough that maybe Roger Stern should have gotten a deft younger hand assisting him not that Roger Stern is like some hack who can't do it and he's out of touch he was like 60 when this came 
came out, he could have benefited from like a Christos Gage, someone who, you know, does work with a lot of people at Marvel, you know, does the and kind of name situation. And you could have coaxed a stronger story out of this. I mean, this is an idea that we have talked about that it sort of shocks me hasn't been done in a really big high profile way. And, you know, for stories like these that are maybe a little bit of a tough sell on their own, but a big name classic writer like Tom DeFalco partnering up with somebody who is a little more younger, a little, little younger, a little more cutting edge, a little more recognizable to current audiences and writing stuff that we're like, man, this guy's killing it. Christos Gage is a great example. If you were to say written by Tom DeFalco and Christos Gage, that would give me some confidence that there are checks and balances on the various things that are going on. I think Tom DeFalco has so much to teach anybody who wants to write comics, even if they have been writing for two decades themselves. I would sit down and listen to Tom DeFalco talk about comics forever. I would kill to write a book with Tom DeFalco. He would write so much of it better than I would. But I think when he said, and here's where the teenager says, I would stop and say, let me give you some suggestions and I would punch up the dialogue. And that would be a really cool partnership. And to advertise that and sell that, I think would be super awesome. This is such a good example of where I think there are really great ideas here that somebody who is sort of a classical understanding of comics is going to have. And there are some points of execution of those ideas that require somebody who is in the weeds of present day comic publishing. At the end of the day, the thing that I find that these classic writers, and by classic writers, I mean nothing ageist. I mean truly writers who shaped classic stories that influence all of the contemporaries that they work with now. So writers of classic works, something that they all have in common is even when their modus, their format, their storytelling style has hit a that point where you can tell that that artist just needs to update their their sound, their producer, maybe a little bit, you can still see that they know how to shape characters like no one's business. And often I think that that's because the character is very of the time that that character is from, which is why perhaps when an, a classic writer returns to work on a classic iteration of a classic character, John Walker's fucking racism comes out. And I just don't care for US Agent. Like, famously as a rule and Kevo used to be like oh you know you're being so negative on this guy who's going to be on Falcon and Winter Soldier and I communicated that you know I had some real concerns about what a horrible racist character he ultimately is and you know Kevo was like hopefully they'll get him right they'll do him better and in a lot of ways they did this does not feel like somebody was trying to think about ways to update and improve on the quality of the character and instead we wound up with a very flat and unimportant iteration. I think that the MCU John Walker is really like there are so many problematic things about this character. This is not a hero. This is a huge problem but it's a one that's very close to home because we have this in all of us and it's something that we have to fight and recognize and check ourselves on but this is not a hero. This is not a replacement. That's the whole point of the show. Comics version under the wrong pen becomes I know this guy's a little prickly but he means well and this is much closer to that and by 2011 I think we had really moved to a point where it was understood that Cap was going to be the person that always did better 
and other caps were going to be the people that could take up the mantle because they would do the same. And that is not for every character. Beast of the X-Men is never going to say, is never going to pick up the shield and be like, I can do better. But there are certain characters that it is in their DNA, their character DNA, to take up the Captain America mantle and to strive for higher ideals. John Walker simply is not one of them. And it's best when that's the whole point, but you've really got to work with that. It's really got to be almost a story in and of itself or a one-off beat like when he was in Devil's Reign X-Men and he just shows up to say something incredibly shitty and you're like, oh yeah, that guy's an asshole. Of course he's working for Wilson Fisk. And then that's it. With some distance and the fact that I read this, I think like a million years ago, and then I read it again for the show and now we've talked about it. I'm comfortable giving this book a C minus, but I'm going to give Kiyoshi B plus A minus for being an amazing character. His potential is probably a lot higher than that. And he was the breakout and standout character of this with our precious Shannon coming in a, a tight second. But this miniseries did nothing for me other than Kiyoshi. And I don't think I recommend like everything else that we've covered so far has been part of a bigger picture that you can kind of justify. Oh, everything else is MC2. Oh, I think that Thunderstrike being in the main Marvel continuity is a thread worth carrying. Sure, but there's no thread here. This might be the first thing that I'm saying. Readers, listeners, you can skip. Yeah, I don't think you are going to get such a holistic and better understanding of the idea of American Dream from this that it's worth, you know, if you've loved all our coverage and how we've fallen in love with these characters and think they're really important and want to see them continue on in some capacity, I, I still do not believe that this really gives you something where you're like, now I understand American Dream in a way I did not before. I think it might actually confuse you more because where the fuck does she fit in now? I should note that in this last issue when everybody returns to where they are, it says New York, one generation in the future, which 2011 compared to 2022, we're already moving to a different generation than they were talking about then, which is like two generations later from what they were talking about when Spider-Girl started. So it's a mess. This is not the one for American Dream. I still love her and she didn't suffer in this. It's just not so illuminating that it's really something I, I think anybody should take their time with. Now, this of course is not the end of our coverage anymore, which thank God, because for a hot minute, this was originally the final thing in our coverage. <laughs> Woof. Uh, the bigger thing of note is that with our MC 2.5 kind of approach to looking at a different perspective on where all of these titles wound up. So while this was originally going to be our final bit of coverage, which glad it's not, we have some other meandering to do, though the meandering we're going to do in the near future finds us squarely back in the Marvel Universe, and I am very excited for that. Though somehow the Thunderstrike stuff we're going to look at next episode falls into the same traps. Uh, I would say it falls into significantly worse traps, but we will get into it. Well, until we get into it, TK, where can everybody find you online? You can find me all over this podcast talking about comics whenever I can, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. You guys can find me in the same places as TK on this show. Plus, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. You can also check out my original comic work at KidRiotComics.com, as well as in the recently released Young Men in Love anthology. We love making this show for you Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. That's, of course, Mondays with MC2 coverage with me and this guy. We've got Wednesdays and Fridays with Modern Marvel coverage. And you can always check the show out at X'sForPodcast.com and on Twitter at X'sForPodcast for more information. We've also recently relaunched our partner YouTube channel over at Hubs Plus Network where you can check out extended versions of the audios you hear here as videos over on the channel. You can also check out our partner series The Billy Club where myself and regular X's for Podcast contributor 
Tori Sheehan, take a look at Daredevil, looking at the character story by story, appearance by appearance, starting back in 1964 with the launch of Daredevil the Man Without Fear. The Stan Lee years can definitely be a tricky thing to navigate, but we try to do the whole thing with an understanding of how far comics have come and a good sense of humor about some of the story tropes like Daredevil launching a car engine at someone using a tire as a slingshot and later flying a rocket ship by radar, that same issue. It's a really complex narrative, but it's a lot of fun to take a look at. It's the same kind of thing we take a look at the other days of the week here on Excess for Podcasts. So if you're somebody who's come to Excess for Podcast for the MC2, we hope you'll join us those other days. And until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Cohen gateways open, keep your universe vaguely MC2, kind of MC2.5, MC Scat Cat, and we'll see you. 